Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 12, verse 1 to 9. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my barrier. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Brian, Justin uh, is on vacation, so you can drop a few bombs from the pulpit today. <laughs> I'll try my best. Uh, we're at uh, midpoint uh, in the sermon series, mm-hmm. and I just can't thank you enough uh, mm-hmm. for what this series has mean to us, has meant to us. I want to pray for you, of course, but I want to pray for us as a congregation that we will really take this series and the portraits of Jesus that we're looking at, uh, put them into into practice and like uh, really soak in them. Mm-hmm. So let me pray for you. Thanks, Dave. Father, I give you thanks for the word that uh, you have inspired and uh, the way we're going to listen to it through Brian's uh, preaching today. Please open our hearts, open our minds, uh, make us attuned to what you, the way you want us to live our lives. Um, I speak for, uh, for Brian. Uh, I, I pray for Brian, too, that as, as he speaks, he will uh, have clarity of mind, and he'll mm. communicate the things that he's prepared so well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, beloved. You've probably heard this, that experts on the human brain tell us that of all the five senses, the sense of smell is the most closely attuned to what? To memory. To memory. And so that's why when you're walking downtown and you walk by one of our bakeries and you smell uh, cookies being baked or fresh baked bread, you think of something from your childhood when you would arrive home from school and your mom had just baked a batch of cookies. All I have to do to relive my past is to walk into a drugstore and go to the men's fragrance section and open up a bottle of Aqua Velva shaving lotion. (laughs) And uh, I am suddenly in a time warp where I'm taken back many years to southwest Calgary where I grew up. Uh, I was 16 years old, and for some reason I was 
slathering on this aqua velva in preparation for my first double date as a 16-year-old. Nobody had the courage to tell me that aqua velva was probably not the pinnacle of men's fragrance and uh, was not a very good way to impress uh, our date that night. Fragrance carries all kinds of memories for all of us. Some of those memories are really lovely memories, and some of them are not. Uh, When my wife and I were dating, she wore one fragrance exclusively, and then I had to go away to college, and so we dated for two years in different cities in Canada, and I was a mess and feeling homesick and lonely, and those of you that have been in that position know exactly how I was feeling. One night, I was walking down the long hall at Canadian Bible College in Regina, and uh, in between the gymnasium and the dining facility, there was a young woman walking towards me. I didn't know who she was, she didn't know me, I assumed that she was another one of the 400 freshmen that were uh, at school at that time, and um, so we passed each other, but that's when it happened. I stopped and turned around and I said, excuse me, and she stopped and turned around and now two strangers are looking at each other, I said, I'm sorry, but are you wearing Estee Lauder youth do? And she said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. I said, oh, good. Do you mind if I just stand close to you for a couple minutes and take some deep breaths? And she said, to my surprise, no, go ahead. (laughs) I don't think she was that impressed when I told her that her perfume reminded me of my girlfriend back home. But in any event, all of this madness about fragrance points to the fact that Certain fragrances take us back and make us think of somebody else. They're connected to past memories. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the story in our text today contains both the theme of fragrance and memory. And there's a single verse that I want all of us to go home with so that if somebody asked you on your, uh, on your way out, what was the sermon about? You could say, the sermon is about this. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's it. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What Mary did for Jesus that day permeated everything. It permeated the entire dinner party, and it permeated history. Her love for him was inescapable. If you were in the house that night, you just couldn't escape witnessing the most unusual outpouring of costly affection. Yes, Martha was also worshiping Jesus in her own way by making dinner, and Lazarus was also worshiping Jesus, the text says, by getting as close to Jesus as he could. Of course, he was freshly raised from the dead. All of them were worshiping Jesus in their own way, but it's Mary's action that Jesus singles out, and not only here, but also in Matthew and in Mark. We mustn't confuse Mary with the sinful woman that broke into a dinner party uh, and did something very similar. 
that was in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And it was Simon the Pharisee who got upset with both the woman and Jesus. Different story. This dinner was in the house of another Simon, but it was Simon the leper. And it was Mary, the very close personal friend of Jesus, who anointed him. And here's where fragrance and memory connect. In Matthew and Mark's account of the story, Jesus concludes the whole experience with these words. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So in other words, just as the whole house was filled with the fragrance of Mary's perfume and what it represented to Jesus, so the whole world would be filled with the memory of Mary's worship of Jesus and all in the context of gospel proclamation of the good news. So we can't miss this. What Mary did is to be forever remembered, says Jesus, because... It belongs to the gospel. It explains the gospel. What she did shows the gospel. It's like a commentary of the gospel. Wow. So first, a little bit of context to our story. It says that this took place six days before Passover. So the anointing of Jesus' feet happened before the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem or Palm Sunday. And this marks a really radical shift in the Gospel of John. From this moment forward, the focus of our Lord is clearly on his death. He is preparing himself and the disciples for his imminent death. And so he says in chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains a single grain of wheat, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It also says in this chapter, if I be lifted up from the earth, he said, all people will be drawn to me. And then it says, this he said because of the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is preparing himself and his disciples for death. And this is precisely why Mary's act of extravagant worship is singled out as a perpetual memorial or something that the world should never forget. In other words, her story appears here in John's Gospel because it's going to provide us with a picture of Jesus' death. Or it will be a living sacrament of his death that explains what's actually happening when Jesus is dying. Because the fact is, Uh, If we just see a man hanging from a cross and dying, we don't know what that means unless we know who the man is, why the man came, and why he's being crucified. Something about Mary's anointing fits together with that gospel message. And this is alluded to by Jesus when he interpreted her anointing as preparation for my burial, he said. So what did Mary do? Well, she took... Uh, something that was very costly, uh, a year's worth of very expensive perfume called nard. She broke it open. She poured out all of the contents on that which happened to be dirty but loved. So does that sound familiar? 
a breaking and a pouring out. And, and what was her motivation? Her motivation, of course, was affection. It was a deep love for Jesus. Why such sacrifice? It was because of her love. Her sacrifice of love is foreshadowing our Lord's. And that's why what she did is to be forever remembered. And it's interesting, in the next chapter, chapter 13, it's Jesus who's the one stooping, washing the disciples' feet. The roles have been reversed. He takes bread, not perfume, and what does he do with the bread? Breaks it open and gives it to them. Then he takes wine, and what does he do? Pours it out into cups to be consumed by his friends. And what is the result? The fragrance of Jesus' sacrifice fills the whole house at the last supper. And now the whole world, we could say, broken, yes, and sinful and detached from God, sees and smells and feels the tangible love of Jesus, not only for his Father, but for us. And there is a breaking of his own life and a pouring out for the world. And as this happens, the fragrance fills the whole house. Everything else is eclipsed. That's what happens when the gospel is preached. The fragrance fills the whole house. And this is true even when Jesus was dying on the cross, when he was actually pouring out his life, the fragrance of his love for the Father and for us is experienced by everyone. It's experienced by the thief who I'm sure is saying to himself, this is too good to be true. Will I actually wake up in paradise with this man from Nazareth? And then the fragrance extends down to the foot of the cross where a Roman centurion who just crucified Jesus smells the sweet fragrance of this sacrifice and cries out in worship, surely this man is the Son of God. And then the fragrance of Christ's sacrifice moves all the way to the temple where the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies is torn into from top to bottom as a symbol that, that, that the heavens have been torn open and humanity and God have been reconciled in the death of Christ. And one of the gospel writers even tells us that the stench of death in the cemetery, is overpowered by the fragrance of Jesus' love for the world as saints emerge from their graves, even though it's not Easter Sunday. To mix the metaphors, and some of you will remember this song, those of you that are my age, Andre Crouch wrote many years ago, the blood that Jesus shed for me, way back on Calvary, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain and it flows into the lowest valley. In other words, the fragrance fills the whole house. It fills the whole world. But even though the whole world hears the gospel or eventually will hear the gospel, in the city of Vancouver, many people are hearing the gospel and learning about Jesus' love for them. The response to such a story and to such extreme outpourings of love has mixed reviews. First, let's talk about the response to Mary's sacrificial outpouring of love. It had mixed reviews. So the disciples, and Judas particularly, were critical of Mary. 
They said the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. That would have been a better use of the money. I think if Judas was living today, uh, he would have expressed his um, feelings in a tweet that would have gone to the whole world. It would have sounded something like this. Mary's irrational enthusiasm got the better of her today, wasting a year's wages on a man's dirty feet. Inexcusable, excessive, fanatical. How do you think Mary felt when one of the 12, Judas, supported by the others, said this about her act of worship? And how did Jesus feel about what Judas said to Mary about her extravagant gift of worship? Well, let's do a little um, uh, visio divina. I've included a painting here. Unfortunately, it's, it's, you can't see it because it's so dark, but let me explain it to you. And if you just leave it up for a second, Mary's head is down on Jesus' feet. This is the part in the story where she is wiping his feet with her hair and kissing his feet. What Jesus is doing here, with one hand, it's extended out like this in a gesture of hospitality saying, I don't care what the rest of the guys are saying about what you're doing. I welcome your gift of love. He puts the welcome mat out for Mary. But with his other hand, his left hand, do you see where it is? It's on Mary's head. Uh, this, is, this is the place where you, you place your hand when you are blessing somebody. You place your hand on the head of the person you are blessing. It's almost like Jesus, in the, in the eyes of this artist, is saying, uh, I don't care what Judas just said to curse you. I will reverse the curse through my act of blessing upon you. So powerful. And what was the response to Jesus' outpouring of love on the cross? There were mixed reviews. Not everybody is ready for such fragrance. Who was it that said, if you are the Son of God, use your power and get us all down from the cross? The other thief. So the one thief, the guy that we call the good thief, interesting, isn't it? A bit of an oxymoron. But the good thief... uh, He's the one who put his faith in Christ and would wake up in paradise. The other thief only understands the economy of power. Get us down from here. This is so important. What is it about Jesus' death on the cross that's beautiful to some people, but repugnant to others? I mean, the cross is not a beautiful thing to see. Roman crucifixion was one of the most hideous, ugly ways to die. So humiliating. But why is it that we as Christians treasure it so much? Isn't it because the true beauty of the cross lies in the kind of God who's willing to be crucified there? That's why we find it so beautiful. He's a God who refuses to win through power politics. He's a God who forgives his enemy enemies. He's a God of self-sacrificing love. He lets the world murder him, and then he forgives them while they're doing it. He's a son 
fully committed to the will of his father, even though he and the father are in agreement that death is the only way forward to bring redemption to the world. And so, if you are a person who believes that the only way to really make it in this world is that for those people who are in power to enforce it, then you won't find anything beautiful about the cross because the cross is the exact opposite of that. It's the way of self-sacrificing love, the way of strength in weakness. It's the way of the lamb, not the way of the dragon. The beauty of the fragrance of Mary's sacrifice and our Lord's on the cross is that both of them are cruciform. It's the beauty and the fragrance of self-sacrificing love. And so only now, I think, are we ready for this story of Mary's fragrant sacrifice and our Lord's sacrifice to come full circle, showing us, First Baptist Church, where we come in. This is the so what in the sermon. Now, as you know, there are many biblical metaphors that describe the church. We are the body of Christ, each person a different member, Jesus being the head. We are the building, each of us living stones, Christ being the cornerstone. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. There are countless others. We are the light of Christ. We are the family of God. It just goes on. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul provides us with another metaphor describing the church that I think is particularly needed today in the year in which we live. Paul says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Can I just say that the the, the thing that's on Paul's mind here is not a victory march of soldiers that have just won a war, but these are slaves that are now loot, uh, that are being dragged behind uh, the winner of the army. This is a picture of, of weakness. But it says here that God is the one leading us in this kind of triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us, here it is, the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus in every place. In other words, the fragrance fills the whole house. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are the fragrance of life. To others we are the fragrance of death. So did you see that? Even the church will have mixed reviews in regard to us, our role in the world. Some will love the fragrance of the church, but others will demand a fragrance-free zone. They will not want the fragrance the church brings. But here's where I believe the Spirit may be leading us, and not just First Baptist Church, but the entire church in Vancouver, in regards to the church being the fragrance of Christ. I think it's quite obvious to all of us that the world in which we are living today is torn into all kinds of factions, and the voice of the church is not always welcome, and sometimes for good reason, because uh, the church has aligned itself with with political power, either either the right-wing populism 
of the extreme right or the left-wing Marxism of the left. And the world is saying, whoa, if this is what your Jesus is like, we don't want any part of him. So granted, uh, these are very tricky days that the church is, is living in. And my, my point here is that as we, as the church, try to avoid engaging in the culture wars, we will be tempted as a church to adopt the metaphor of light as our primary metaphor. Light exposes the darkness. We are the light of the world. Jesus said that. Light draws a line in the sand. Light calls evil, evil, and good, good. And this is what we do as a church. We speak for God in the highest places of power in Ottawa and in the kindergarten class with grade five kids. This is what Christians do. We are people that speak the truth for God. And I don't in any way want to underestimate this important role. What is it that we talk about? Well, we talk about the sanctity of human life, don't we? We talk about the sacredness of marriage and God's design for sexuality. We talk about justice for the poor. We talk about all kinds of things. We speak for God. We are the light of the world. However, here's where our text today provides some caution and some balance. Light is a metaphor for truth. And we are that. But fragrance is a metaphor for beauty. And we are also that. Truth and beauty are two sides of the same coin. And so there's a real danger in being a Christian or being a church where we only pursue the truth without beauty. If our goal is to convince our unbelieving children or to convince our spouse or to convince the culture of the truth, but it's void of beauty, we are leaving out a huge aspect of the character of God, for God is not just true. He is infinitely beautiful beyond comprehension. And so could it be that what attracts people to the truth of Christ in these days will be the beauty of Christ manifest in selfless giving? And so if that's true, well, the artists have a very big job. If beauty is important, let the artists arise, paint, sculpt, write. Let the musicians and the poets and the architects and the, the gardeners and the perfumers dust off their sacred craft and in the name of Christ create as much beauty as possible to gift the world with it. But there's more. Church at First Baptist, you are the fragrance of Christ wherever you go. In the classroom, on the soccer pitch, in the office tower, in the cafe, in your home, in Costa Rica, and on the streets. The darker things get in this world, the greater the opportunity for the church. It's evangelism by beauty. And the sweet fragrance fills the whole house. When I was a much younger pastor, pastoring in North Vancouver, just to put things in, in context, Bruce Milne was the pastor at First Baptist way back then. 
And um, I had a professor who told me, uh, I was a young, cocky leader in my 30s, on my heroic journey, and he said to me, you, uh, mister, need to go to the downtown east side and spend all night there. You need to sleep on the street. And so I did, along with two other friends who were pastors, both women. I grew out my beard, took off my glasses, took off my wedding band, and I got a toque and pulled it way down over my eyes to cover my Christian and Missionary Alliance haircut. I wouldn't have fooled anybody being a street person with this kind of hair. And um, I got the dirtiest uh, clothes I could find, and my two female friends did the same and made themselves look as street-like as they possibly could. And we got on the sea bus in North Vancouver and came across to the Water Street Terminal. You've all been there many times. We started by panhandling. hoping to get enough money to buy the three of us dinner. We failed miserably at that. And so we went to the one place where we knew they would feed us. We went to the Union Gospel Mission. And we lined up with the rest of the street people, and they filed us into a chapel where we heard the gospel being preached. And then we filed into the dining room where we saw the gospel being demonstrated. And there was in the dining room the sweet fragrance of roast beef. And as we were dining together with our new street people friends, a very burly guy who looked like a biker, tattoos everywhere, looked like he had an interesting history, but was now on staff at the Union Gospel Mission, walked into the middle of the dining hall while we're all eating, and he says in a huge voice, Hey, guys, who loves you in this city more than we do? And in unison, everybody said, No one. And I looked at my two friends, and we knew that we were witnessing the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus in that place. We walked out with full stomachs, but I felt quite responsible for my friends. I did not want to sleep on the street or on the sidewalk or under a bridge with them. We were all feeling just a little nervous about our safety, so we walked up and down East Hastings and Cordova, seeing if there was somebody who would take us in, and there was, and they were Christians. They were the Salvation Army crosswalk mission that is no longer there, but it was on East Hastings. And we, when we walked in the door, uh, the host saw the two, my two female friends and said, you two come with me right away, and took the two into another room in the back. And I never saw them again that night. And then he came out and he said to me, there's your mat and there's a blanket. Hope you have a good night. And I lay my mat down. Uh, on the floor of the crosswalk mission, and there were, I counted them, about 15 other men that were suffering from addiction, from withdrawal, from mental illness. And you know that phrase, sleeping with one eye open? That's what happened that night. But it, it wasn't over. One of the Filipino staff walked into the room just before turning the lights out on us guys, and he said, "Uh, guys, I'm going to pray God's love into you tonight. 
And he began to pray that we would experience God's love as we slept, that we would be protected from evil spirits and from bad dreams. And then he said, amen, and turned the lights off. And now for the second time, it was the intoxicating, sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus that was stronger than the other odor that was in that room. But that wasn't the end. Then, just a few minutes after the lights go out, a group of people, which I thought maybe would have been about 10 or 12 because of the reflection coming through the window, stopped at the door of the crosswalk mission. And I thought, who are these people and what are they doing? And then I could overhear them praying. This was a group from Glad Tidings Church on a prayer walk. <laughs> they were on a prayer walk through East Hastings that night and praying for all of us who were staying at the crosswalk mission. And now for the third time, I witnessed the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus filling the whole house, filling all of Vancouver. 6 a.m. couldn't come fast enough, and my two friends came out from the back room, and it was pouring rain, I mean, just driving, driving rain, and so the staff were concerned. They got three green garbage bags, and they cut a hole in the top and two holes in the sides, and they put them on us, and they said, this will keep you dry. So the three of us, wearing green garbage bags, went running from the crosswalk mission as fast as we can in the rain towards the sea bus terminal. But to do that, you have to go by the Starbucks on Water Street. <laughs> and I said to the girls, I said, I didn't tell you this, but I hid a $20 bill in my sock just in case. Let's go get a really good cup of coffee. And so we did. Can you picture us? Can you picture us? Three evangelical ministers, looking like street people, wearing green garbage bags. We look like three drowned city rats. We walk into Starbucks at 6 a.m. There's nobody else in there except the barista. And we're looking up at the wall as to what we're going to order. And suddenly, a woman comes in, and we all look at her. And she's stunningly gorgeous. And she's dressed like she walked out of Saks Fifth Avenue. Her hair is made, is made up. Her, the, the makeup is impeccable. And we look at her, and she looks at us, and she says this, Good morning. Are you guys poor? What am I going to say? I said, well, no, actually, we're not poor. We're just pretending to be poor. <laughs> and... She thought I was being sarcastic because she responded by saying, hey, it's okay to be poor. We've all been poor. And she pulled out of her purse a wad, no kidding, of bills this thick, cash, gave it to the barista and said, my new friends can have whatever they want. I turned to her and I said, who are you? And why are you here? She said to us, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> What's going on here with this meeting? She was an East Vancouver exotic dancer. She had worked all night. She was just getting off work. She would always stop at the Water Street Starbucks. I said to her, it's really interesting because we're actually three ministers. We're evangelical ministers, and we spent the whole night on the street. 
And she then opened up to us and told her of the funeral that she was going to go to that afternoon, of one of her friends who overdosed, etc., etc. And it was a very sweet moment between a stripper and three evangelical pastors. We walked out of that uh, Starbucks holding our high-end coffees, and I really think it was Jesus who was having the last laugh on this one. We got on the sea bus, and, and the overwhelming sense is that everywhere we went, we experienced the love of God for us through the church, even through a most unlikely woman. Freely you have received. Now, freely give. Evangelism, by contrast. Keep it up, church. Keep it up. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. I'm borrowing a prayer today from a professor at Biola. Her name is Jeannie Harder. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life, summoning us from death into new life with you. We live in a world broken by the stench of sin and death and tinged with anxiety, loneliness, despair, and injustice. Would you touch these broken places in our own hearts with the fragrance of your love? Would you grant us courage to live this day in bold response to this love? Give us Mary's audacity. May we hold nothing back. Help us articulate your love in word and deed to those who desperately need the fragrance of your life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.